Our scripture lesson this evening is taken from the Old Testament book of Judges, page 276 in the Pew Bible, Judges chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 19 and read through chapter 2, verse 5, with particular attention to the first five verses of chapter 2. But starting at uh, Judges chapter 1 on uh, verse 19. Judges 1.19, so the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland, because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. And he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheon and its villages, or Teanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibelim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass, when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahol, so the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Echo, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Adlab, or Exib, or Helba, or Aphek, or Rehob, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites in the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ijalon, and in Sheabim. Yet when strength, the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall dare down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? 
Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the ends of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, the book of Judges has two introductions. It has an historical introduction and it has a thematic introduction. The historical introduction begins at chapter 1, verse 1, and ends with chapter 2, verse 5. So uh, we have, uh, we're looking tonight at the end of the first introduction. The, uh, the first introduction uh, is a historical narrative, and it follows much the pattern of historical narratives that you find in various places in the Bible. Uh, they begin with a command and promise from God, then follows the history of Israel's not so great obedience to that command or trust in that promise, and then uh, concludes with judgment from God for their failure and renewal through repentance and faith. And that's what we find here as well. Several months ago, I looked with you at the first part of Judges chapter one. We see there that it follows after the death of Joshua and there remained yet lands unconquered. Joshua had led them in a campaign, first to uh, destroy the kings of the south and then the kings of the north and to uh, conquer various other uh, cities and towns and territories, and he distributed the inheritance. Uh, he assigned uh, uh, provinces to each of the uh, tribes and so forth, but when he died, there were still uh, areas unconquered. And so after the death of Joshua, they inquired of the Lord, uh, who will lead us now that Joshua is dead? And uh, God answered, Judah, the tribe of Judah will lead. Uh, Judah was the royal tribe. Uh, Jacob had prophesied the scepter will not depart from Judah until uh, he comes, until uh, the descendant of the tribe of Judah, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, comes. Uh, they're the royal tribe, and uh, they represent the coming Savior, and so they're to lead. And uh, Judah makes a good beginning, a good beginning. They start conquering, and we see in their initial victories a foreshadowing of the victory of Jesus Christ over his enemies and our enemies. Uh, we are encouraged to know that uh, from the tribe of Judah will come victory for God's people. But Judah is just a tribe. It's not uh, the Savior and they begin to falter, and particularly in verse 19 when they come against chariots of iron, uh, they're not able to conquer them, and it's not because iron chariots are so strong. It was for their lack of faith. In the book of Joshua, while Joshua was still living, we read that Joshua told them, don't be afraid of chariots of iron. The Lord is with you. And uh, later on in the book of Judges, 
Uh, during the time of Deborah and Barak, we'll see that they went against uh, Sisera's army that had 900 iron chariots, and because they trusted the Lord, they had no trouble putting those 900 uh, chariots to rout and defeating Sisera's army. But on this occasion, uh, Judah's faith faltered, and uh, they began to decline. And when Judah's faith faltered, when they began to uh, stumble, then all Israel stumbled with them. And the rest of the chapter that I read to you after verse 19 shows uh, the other tribes also not doing so well. And there are three stages of compromise. Uh, first, uh, the Israelites uh, let the Canaanites live among them. And then we read about the Canaanites letting the Israelites live among them. And then the third degree of compromise is when uh, uh, one Canaanite tribe refuses even to let uh, the Danites come into their, the land of their inheritance. You can't live here at all. And uh, so things went from bad to worse. Once the leader fails, then those who are under that leader fail with him. We see that in the book of Genesis with regard to Adam. He is our covenant head, and when uh, Adam fell, we all fell with him. And uh, we see just the opposite, of course, in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, because he is faithful and because he succeeds, we succeed in him. And so we learn from that first chapter that we need something better than just the tribe of Judah. We need him who is the lion of the tribe of Judah who will be our Savior, and indeed in the fullness of time that Savior has come. But now we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where we see uh, judgment and restoration, or if you like alliteration, then the title that is in the bulletin, uh, Rebuke and Renewal. And the first thing that we need to take note of is from whom the rebuke comes. It's said to come from the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord comes to them and rebukes them. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? Well, to get some background on that angel of the Lord, we could go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 23, beginning at verse 20, where it says, God says to his people, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice, do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the uh, Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out." Well, God is saying to these Israelites uh, who have just come out of Egypt and are about to enter the promised land or uh, should have been about to enter the promised land. Uh, they, uh, of course, didn't get there for another 40 years, but he says, I'm sending my angel. My angel's going to lead you, and you need to listen to him. Uh, he's to be feared. He's to be obeyed. He'll go before you. He will destroy your enemies, and uh, if you are unfaithful, he will pass uh, judgment on you. It's interesting when you read that passage from Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 to 23, uh, the God goes back and forth between the third person and the first person. He says, uh, if you obey his voice and do what I say, 
obey his voice, do what I say as if they're the same thing, for indeed they are the same thing. And uh, he says, he will go before you and I will blot them out. Uh, he'll go before you and lead you against the enemy and I will blot them out. Uh, we also note that uh, it said there that if you uh, break the covenant, he will not forgive uh, as if he has the power to uh, forgive or not forgive, a power that belongs only to God. And uh, God says of him in that passage from Exodus, my name is in him, which means he's a revelation of me. Well, here in Judges 2, uh, the angel says, he is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt and led them into the land he swore to give to Abraham. Uh, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land. In Judges 2, it says, the angel of the Lord brought you up out of the land. And... Uh, in Genesis, uh, God says, I swore to Abraham. And in Judges 2, the angel of the Lord says, I swore to Abraham. Well, obvious, this angel of the Lord is God himself. Uh, he is identical with God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the pre-incarnate Christ. He's called an angel uh, because uh, he is... Uh, uh, a messenger of God. That's uh, the, the basic meaning of uh, the word angel. Uh, it means messenger. Sometimes the word angel uh, can refer to created beings, spiritual beings like the angel Gabriel. Uh, sometimes the word angel can refer to ministers, human ministers, as in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, uh, is to the minister of the church of Ephesus, give this message. And, uh, but here it is to the primary messenger and primary revealer of the Father, which is the Son who brings us the message of the Father, who reveals the Father to us. Uh, he also is the angel of the Lord. And uh, uh, it is uh, noteworthy that uh, uh, all judgment is given to him, that is to Jesus. Uh, John verse 5 says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And uh, God says he has appointed a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the judge. God has appointed Jesus to be the judge. We see him already doing that judgment now here in Judges chapter 2. He appears as the angel of the Lord. He appears as the judge, and he's the one who brings the rebuke. It's a reminder to you and me that uh, one day all mankind will be gathered in front of Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth, and uh, he will gather together all uh, human beings, and he will judge them, separating them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and uh, condemning one to their just reward and uh, inviting the others to uh, come and receive uh, the promised blessing that comes through faith in Jesus. Now, what charge, what charge does this uh, judge, the angel of the Lord in the pre-incarnate Christ, what judgment does he bring? What is the content of the rebuke? Well, the content of the rebuke is that you have broken my covenant. You've broken the covenant. And uh, they have broken the covenant two ways. Uh, first, they have made covenants with the Canaanites. That is, they have entered into uh, uh, pacts with them. Uh, 
they started doing that with the tribe that, uh, the Gibeonites that tricked them into doing it. But then uh, that became a pattern and they were no longer being tricked into doing it. They were doing it voluntarily saying, if you uh, will uh, serve us, if you'll be uh, our, ser our servants, uh, then we'll let you live. Uh, they got tired of, of fighting battles and they thought, well, it's enough that they uh, simply don't oppose us, you know, and so forth. And, and then it got worse and they entered into a, sort of a pact where if, if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. And so the, they, they each let each other live. And uh, uh, so they were entering into these uh, uh, adulterous uh, covenants, adulterous because they're an act of unfaithfulness. They were to uh, uh, love the Lord and serve Him, and uh, the Lord said, uh, destroy these tribes or drive them out of the land, get rid of them, I don't want them in the land anymore, and uh, nevertheless, you entered into these uh, uh, peace contracts with them, these uh, unholy covenants, uh, that allowed them to live in the land. That's one way that they have broken the covenant, and the other is that they have not broken down the altars of the pagan gods. Now, every town that they conquered, presumably, they broke down the altar, but all those towns that they didn't conquer, the altars didn't get broken down, and so throughout the Holy Land, the land that belongs to the Lord, there are still all these pagan altars in the towns that remain unconquered. And uh, this, too, is an affront to the holiness of God. He, he wants to dwell in this land. He wants to dwell in this land in the midst of his people, and the, the, the entire land needs to be wholly dedicated to him. And yet there are these uh, altars to false gods. Then he reminds them of three things that make these sins inexcusable. There's no excuse for you entering into these uh, peace treaties with these people, and there's no excuse for leaving towns unconquered and therefore leaving their altars intact. First of all, I delivered you from Egypt. You know, remember what I did. Remember the, the ten plagues. Remember the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's hosts in the Red Sea. Remember the manna and the quail and the water from the rock and, and, and the, the, the glory cloud that led you every, every step of the way. I delivered you out of Egypt. If I can do all that, certainly I can get rid of these Canaanites. I promised to get rid of them, and you should have trusted me. He said, uh, also, I fulfilled the promise to your forefathers by bringing you here. Remember, I, I said to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that uh, though you will go down to Egypt for 400 years, I will bring you up again, and here you are. You're back here in the land. I fulfilled my promise. If I can keep that promise, I can keep all my promises. And then he went on to remind them that he never breaks his covenant. He always keeps his word. And therefore, if Israel had not broken the covenant, they would have conquered the land. And then God asked that very searching question, why? Why have you done this? Why have you done this? I don't know if you have a, a guilty conscience about anything or have ever had a guilty conscience. I hope you have had a guilty conscience because we all are guilty. And if our consciences are uh, spiritually alive, uh, they will be afflicted with guilt from time to time. But, but a guilty conscience is God's way of speaking to you today and saying to you, why have you done this? Have you wondered sometimes, you looked at what you did and you said, 
What came into me? Why did I do such a thing? Well, that's God coming to you, convicting you of your sin. He has shown you in his word what is right, and he has revealed to you that you have broken his word, and and then you're humbled when you realize you never should have done this. God comes again and again with that question. He, from the very beginning, he came to Adam and Eve, asking Adam, where are you? God knew where he was, but he's basically asking, why are you hiding from me? And then very straightforwardly to Eve, what is this you have done? Or when King Saul came back from battle and uh, he had he was under command to destroy everything, including the animals. And Saul says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Why do I hear sheep when you were commanded to put all those animals to death? What is this you have done? Or Jesus to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What is this you have done? God's sovereignty does not cancel out human responsibility. And God is still saying to sinners, what is this you have done? After calling them on the carpet, rebuking them, telling them why they shouldn't have done it, and asking them to look within themselves to see their sin and, and realize how terrible it is that they have done that they never should have done it, he imposes sentence on them. And the sentence is in strict accord to what he had promised to do. In Numbers 33, verse 55, Numbers 33, 55, God had said, if you don't drive out these people, this is what I'm going to do. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you have let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and as thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. You can find similar words to that in the book of Joshua. God says they'll be in your sides, which means they'll, they'll be your companions. Uh, it's kind of like uh, being yoked together with unbelievers. You'll be together side by side, but it will not be a pleasant partnership. It will be a source of continuous grief and pain. Since you let them live, your punishment is you'll have to live with them. And they will be snares to your feet. They will trip you up. Or as uh, it says in Numbers, there'll be barbs in your eyes that you won't be able to see things clearly. You're going to go astray because of them. And it didn't take long. You just go ahead a few chapters from our text. In Judges chapter 3, verse 6, you see that uh, Israel is worshiping the pagan gods, and Israel is intermarrying with pagans. Uh, they have uh, completely uh, abandoned the Lord in just uh, a generation or two. The lesson for this is that covenant breakers get what they want. And because they get what they want, they are miserable because of it. You want peace with the world? Then I'll give you peace with the world, and you'll be miserable because of it. The corrupting influences of the world will seep into the church and corrupt the church and eventually destroy the church. 
The church is destroyed because its message gets watered down. In the 19th century, when uh, Charles Darwin was espousing his theory of uh, evolution, uh, it certainly uh, contradicted the Genesis account and church didn't want to fight the world in this, and so they began to make compromises. And science seemed to uh, contradict the idea of miracles, and the church didn't want to fight uh, with the world, so they began to say, yes, uh, um, the miracles were, of course, uh, not real, but it's, it's the moral teaching of Jesus that's important. So the, the gospel message was reduced to, to moralisms, and the uh, the deity of Christ began to be uh, denied in the early part of the 20th century in the modernist uh, churches. And uh, uh, later on in the uh, 20th century, uh, even uh, conservative, seemingly conservative Reformed churches thought, uh, we don't want to be fighting this uh, evolution and we don't want to be fighting the uh, egalitarianism that is uh, so uh, prevalent in the world. And so uh, the church proposes uh, theistic uh, evolution. And uh, uh, allows uh, women to be ordained to all the offices. And now we uh, read about the, the Church of England. Um, they don't want to be uh, fighting with the uh, homosexual community, and so they're, uh, they're not going to perform same-sex marriages, but they will bless same-sex union. Uh, uh, the world, uh, the church wants to be at peace with the world, and uh, the corrupting influences of the world come into the church, corrupt the church, corrupt its message. The church is no longer able to exercise spiritual discipline against its members because it has uh, allowed all this stuff into the church, and, and, and the church dies. Uh, you want peace with the world, you can have peace with the world, but it will be the death of you. Uh, and with regard to breaking down idols, if you don't break down the idols, they'll be a snare to you. Uh, you'll fall because of them. You know, one of the great idols of our time is autonomy or self-rule. No one tells me what to do. Uh, I'm my own boss. I decide for myself. I'm a law unto myself. That's autonomy, a self-rule. It's uh, epitomized and symbolized in our culture by, uh, by abortion. Uh, the so-called right to privacy. You know, it always uh, saddens me that there are so many people in our culture, in our society, that are in favor of abortion who would probably never avail themselves of it. Why do they support it? Well, because it is symbolic of, of an idol that everybody in our culture values. Everybody except Christians ought to, uh, Christians ought not to value it, but uh, uh, others uh, certainly value it, this value that I am my own boss and nobody tells me what to do. Uh, they uh, uh, look to this and say, uh, yeah, that it represents that, and because I value autonomy, I'm going to let the, the women have their autonomy as well in that area. And God says, well, if you want to, want to treat life within the womb, as, uh, as cheap, then uh, your life will become cheap. Your life will become cheap in the eyes of the government who pays for your medical expenses uh, in socialistic countries uh, like Canada and Great Britain and uh, now uh, 
people are being told, you're too old to, to get a knee replacement, you're too old to get a hip replacement, and not, not because your heart is weak, not because your lungs are weak, no, you can be uh, constitutionally very strong, but just your age alone disqualifies you. The state isn't going to spend any more money on you. And uh, that is creeping even into our own uh, medical uh, decisions and, uh, in some ways. Uh, God says, if you, uh, if you want no children, well, okay, then I'll give you no children. And, and you'll be lonely. Not only will you be lonely, but your, your society will, will fall apart economically and go into economic ruin because there will be too few workers and too few consumers and all government services are going to run out of money. Companies won't invest in uh, capital expenditures because uh, there's no reason to, to improve the product because there's nobody to buy the product. And uh, the economy will shrink and die. Uh, people destroy themselves by worshiping the idols of this world. We are told to love not the world or the things of the world, but to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelief. You know, when the church invites the world uh, into a compact of peace, it's, it's kind of like a Christian knowingly, deliberately, defiantly marrying a non-Christian. I've seen that from time to time, where a Christian, a professing Christian, knowingly, deliberately, defiantly marries a non-Christian. And it's always a sad, sad thing. It never produces a happy marriage. And the church thinks that it can uh, make peace with the world and somehow have a, a happy marriage. No, they will be in your side. They will, you will be yoked together side by side, but it will be a thorn in your side and become a deadly thorn. The two sins here, adulterous covenants and uh, uh, idolatry, are the core sins of Israel throughout the whole book of Judges, but not only throughout the whole book of Judges. These are sins that are prevalent even in the world today. Uh, of which the church is tempted, and we must be on guard against them. Now God comes and uh, he rebukes them. You have broken my covenant. You have entered into unholy alliances. You have not broken down their altars. There's no excuse for this. What have you done? And this is your sentence. You're going to be miserable because of it. How did Israel respond? Well, they responded well. They wept. And the Hebrew word for weeping is similar to the word bokim. Uh, they name the place weeping as a memorial to future generations that when the Lord comes and the Lord rebukes you, you should weep. You should be sorry for your sins. Paul writes about a sorrow, a worldly sorrow that leads to death, but a, a godly sorrow that leads to life. And we can know that this is a, a godly sorrow that, that leads to life because they, they came and they offered sacrifices on the altar there at Bokim. Now, if the altar is at Bokim, then that means the tabernacle is at Bokim. Uh, when our text uh, begins, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bokim, we should understand that to mean that God moved the tabernacle, you know, through the 40 years, God moved the tabernacle many times by uh, uh, the cloud of glory cloud rising and moving to a new territory, so they packed up the tabernacle and moved it. We don't know what means God used to indicate to Israel on this occasion, but uh, the altar is in 
the tabernacle, and they are offering at Bochim the uh, sacrifices, so evidently it had moved. They, uh, when they first came into the land, they erected the tabernacle in Gilgal, and, uh, but now they've moved the tabernacle to this place, Bochim. We don't know where that is. Per, some speculate Shechem or uh, Bethel. But anyway, uh, they, they are sorry for their sins and they offer sacrifices to God. Why do they offer sacrifices to God? Well, they have been taught uh, from uh, their earliest uh, history that uh, offering a sacrifice to God is the means of atoning for sin. Uh, Isaac was condemned to death for his sin, but God accepted the sacrifice of the substitute in the place of Isaac, and God provided that substitute. And in the, the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, or verse 13 to 21, Leviticus 4, 13 to 21, we have uh, the sin offering for the whole assembly when all the people sin. And uh, such a sacrifice was a sweet savor to God. And so they, they remember the instruction of Moses in the book of Leviticus about uh, when the whole community sins, what they are to do, and in obedience to the law of Moses, they bring this sacrifice and they offer it unto God. Of course, the, uh, the sacrifice itself is not what removes sin, but the fact that, that they come in faith, in obedience, and that the sacrifice itself points to a greater sacrifice to come uh, God overlooked the sins in the past because he knew he would be sending his son and that uh, these sacrifices represent that. And so uh, we are assured that when we come to God confessing our sins with sorrow for them and trusting in the, in the death of the substitute to atone for us, we are forgiven. You know, in this account, we see that God's judgment was quite severe. He didn't soften it. He didn't say, well, this is your first uh, adventure in the promised land, and uh, you're inexperienced, and you're still new at this, and so uh, some failures are to be expected. No, he made no excuses for them. His judgment was severe, and, and they made no excuses for themselves. The judgment was total, but it's total judgment that makes possible total grace. Uh, it's because God judged severely Jesus Christ and did not withhold anything but poured out all his wrath on Jesus because his judgment was severe. You and I are able to receive perfect grace and forgiveness because Christ paid it all. He endured it all. He paid it all. And therefore, sin is completely atoned for for God's wrath has been, his justice satisfied, his wrath propitiated, and uh, we are forgiven. All who come to God in repentance and faith are assured that through faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this history, this history that shows your great uh, love by your promise and your command to uh, but also Israel's failure. We thank you that you came to them in judgment. You rebuked them. You didn't just destroy them as they deserved, but you rebuked them. You called them to account so that they would be uh, moved to repent, and you worked repentance in them, and they, in turn, trusted in your work to atone for their sins. We pray, O oh Father, that we may see in this uh, your will for our lives as well, and that we may go forth in gratitude for all that you have done for us in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.